Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is the man, the legend, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, We are excited today because we are doing, uh, you could say, a podcast crossover of sorts with, and I will say, I'll preempt this by saying... I don't know about everyone, but my podcast listening schedule has been completely fucked up by lockdown because I normally would listen in my car. Um, So I actually have not been listening to many podcasts for 2020. The one that I have been listening to a lot, though, is The King Cast, which is a Stephen King podcast. If you have not checked it out already, do so. And we have the hosts of The King Cast, Scott Wampler and Eric Vespe. How are you guys doing? Hello. Doing great. How are you? Uh, we are doing good. I'm not um, supposed to be recording right now, am I? No, that's okay. Okay, cool. That Just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we got to dial this all the way back, buddy. <laughs> um, and I guess, so you guys are both film journalists. Is that what, I, I never really know what to call film journalists these days. I know some people feel like, well, I don't do journalism. I'm not trying to get like scoops uh, I write essays and reviews. Eric, okay, you want to go first or you want me to go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, nerds. I, I've just been, you know, a geek that fell into writing about movies online and I happened to do it right when the internet started uh, becoming <laughs> a real thing. So so I just kind of lucked into it. I uh, the, the most journalism training I, I had was I took journalism 101 in newspaper in high school. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd say blogger, writer, 
you know, sex god, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, um, shit, I, I applied to a, I, I was managing, I was general managing a Jamba Juice at the time, which was extremely cool. And uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, I was not thrilled with my lot in life. And one night I was, this was around the time that I was uh, kind of trying my hand at stand-up. I applied to an open job listing for some content farm that existed uh, about 10 years ago uh, while shit face drunk and applied to this thing to, for a position writing about uh, comedy. And uh, <laughs> well, it was a content farm. They didn't really have a limit on, uh, they weren't really looking at quality. They just wanted quantity. So of course I got the job and then I somehow got enough attention doing that job to get hired by Collider. And then I worked for Collider for a few years. And then uh, my friend, um, I didn't know her at the time, but now my very good friend, Meredith Borders, um, poached me a little bit out of there to work for uh, what was then Badass Digest. And I worked there for several years. And then by the time it was all said and done, we had a different name. It was Birth Movies Death, and I was the the managing editor of the site. And um, I managed to lose that job twice just this year, which is an interesting statistic. Um, so I consider myself pretty much out of that game. I, I don't ever want to write up a fucking trailer again as long as I live. And um, I feel like I had a pretty good run. Um, I'm enjoying doing this. I don't know what comes after it, but we'll figure it out. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it because I'm, I'm sad uh, on principle for what happened to Birth Movie's death. Um, yeah. Well, look, you know, I, a lot of people say that to me um, whenever Birth Movie's death comes up and... I just want everyone to know that um, when COVID hit and we got shut down the first time, that was the real heartbreaking one for us. That's the one where we were like, despite everything we were doing right and all the stuff we had planned for the future just got shut down. And when we got bought out by Cinestate, we did not expect that. Came out of nowhere. We had a month where we were given complete editorial control of the site and we went bananas and just did whatever we wanted. (laughs) I feel like within that month, we did some of the best work we ever did. And then we did a big uh, Black Lives Matter fundraiser and raised like $50,000 for a really good organization. And then we went on strike and, you know, lost our jobs because, you know, the oh, things didn't man. work out with Cinestate. Yeah. But, but that month, that month made all the difference. It was like a victory lap for us. We got to come back, do what we would have done all along if we had had the leashes off. And none of us feel like we wasted that time. So I feel like we got a really nice kind of going away present that a lot of people wouldn't have gotten in that uh, situation. So um, it's really unfortunate it went down the way it did, but um, we've all made our peace with it. And and I hope people aren't sad about it. Well, it's nice there's some silver lining. And oddly enough, this is actually a good segue into our topic. Because I was going to say, we were very excited that Fangoria asked us to write an unmade movie uh, article for them. And we wrote about George Romero's attempts to make The Stand uh, for pretty much all of the 80s. Uh, And that was the issue that basically didn't come out when the Fangoria people also kind of had to go on strike because of (laughs) their relationship with Cinestate. But now they have new ownership, and I am pleased to see that that issue uh, is, you can, you back order it basically from their website Um, because we wanted to do something Stephen King themed coming up for uh, CBS's new stand miniseries 
I mm-hmm. normally that that would have been the perfect thing, but we already did it for Fangoria. <laughs> so now we are going to yeah. do the next best thing, his second longest novel, which briefly <laughs> got to hold the title of longest novel until King released his like unedited version of right. the stand, which is, I feel barely longer than it really. Like it just kind of, you know, beat it by a Edged hair. It out. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we're going to be talking about the, not quite as epic as the attempts to make the stand into a feature film, which technically they failed at again, since they went back <laughs> to doing a TV miniseries. Uh, but we're going to be talking about Stephen King's it mostly we'll hit a little bit on leading up to the miniseries, but mostly it's kind of starting around 2010 when they were determined to make it a feature film and ultimately succeeded with the Andy Muschietti. Muschietti? I feel like I said it right. We predicted <laughs> you said we it right, gonna, and then you, yeah. you second-guessed yourself. I, gonna, I know, I shouldn't. I just uh, got to project confidence, Josh. Um, but since I view this as kind of a crossover with our podcast, is how could it not be? Let's just start off a bit by talking about maybe not even how we got into King, but when you guys first read it. Because for me, it's one and the same. Uh, and I've actually talked to a lot of people around my age where for whatever reason, I guess just because the book was so famous at that exact time, that was like my decision that I'm going to go from reading like Ramona the Pest to like <laughs> time to read an adult book. And right. for some reason, I picked the longest, most adult book possible. And it took me like three months to read. I feel like I couldn't have understood over half of it, I'm sure. <laughs> But also I was just like hooked. Uh, and then I kind of systematically went through all the King stuff. You know, it was it exciting that there was pretty much everything he wrote from that period had a movie. And as such a mm-hmm. movie kid, it was really exciting that I could see the movie and read the book. Um, when did you guys first hit upon it? You take uh, it. Scott, you can, you can go forward. Oh, look at that. We are already talking. You go first. <laughs> we can't decide. Um, I got, I came to it, I was probably in middle school. I I figured out fairly recently that I read it for the first time when I was about the age of the kids in it. Uh, And what's really bonkers is I came back to revisit it completely on intentionally. And I was the exact age of the adults versions (laughs) of it. So, and that was the first time that I'd reread it, but it has been my favorite King story since that initial reading. Like I love you know, I, I love the Stand of Death. The Dark Tower series is is you know on a pedestal for me. Uh, you know, Cujo's a great read. Shining's a great read. He's he's got these amazing short story collections. He's got nothing but, you know, he's got more hits uh, than you know most people can dream of. And uh, it always spoke to me on a level that probably the Stand is the only one that came close. That in the Dark Tower series, um, where. I guess because they're so long, like you get to a point in the middle of the book where you you're turning pages and it doesn't feel like you're getting any closer to the end. It's almost like a never ending story thing, uh, but you also don't want it to end. Right. Like you, I, I loved the characters. I loved the losers club. You know, I, I saw little bits of myself in it, you know, I was the fat kid, you know, growing up. So I saw a lot of myself in Ben Hanscom. I, you know, the, the horror stuff was, was all gnarly and, you know, grabbed my horror geek interest. So all the character work, all the plot, the bad guy, everything worked for me uh, in that book. And, you know, I, I think that there's something special to reading it at that young age, especially 
you know, before you, because I read it when I was in that same transition those kids are there. That whole book is tr about transitioning into adulthood. And to read it in during that transition is something that I would like, you know, someday if I have kids and they're any, what, anywhere near interested in the same stuff I was, I would actually encourage them reading at that age. Uh, it's kind of screwed up because I have a nephew now who's 13 and I don't like, I don't know if I would think he's ready now to read it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so bizarre. It's different reading. now though. I, I, it, it is, it we is. We were all watching like, R-rated movies when we were like 10. It was the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just how, how it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a sing, grew up mostly with a single mother. You know, she remarried when I was 10. 10, 11, so she married right around this time. But like, I mostly grew up with babysitters and, you know, latchkey kid. And, you know, that that's, she had to go work multiple jobs to keep us in, in our apartment. Like it was, you know, it was, it was a different time, you know, where I could ride my bike uh, a mile to the mall theater, the fourplex that was at the mall and spend $3 to go, <laughs> go watch, uh, you know, whatever was playing. And nobody batted it. And I have had a nine and 10 year old doing that. You know, th that absolutely couldn't happen today. Well, also, if you read it when you're the same age as the losers, though, then the infamous, like, little kid orgy scene is not actually as creepy and inappropriate. Right. No, <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it is when you revisit it. Yes. <laughs> when you're 30, 37. Um, but, like, and, I, and I'll say this, and you, people might judge me for it, but, like, I remember feeling an intense amount of pride being the fat kid <laughs> reading about, about Bev, like enjoying it with Ben the most. And then did something that you can't, you know, ever, you know, talk about in any terms as an adult, but I, I can feel comfortable saying that as a kid, that, that that's a distinct memory I have reading that going, yeah, look, the, the fat kid that truly loves her, you know, <laughs> is, is the one that she likes the most. And, and uh, uh, it is... I mean, listen, that, that scene, and we've joked about it so much on the, the King cast, because how can you not? Like, that is, any, any th th this is the most popular author, like, in the <laughs> 20th century. And he, one of his most famous books, you know, ends with a child orgy. You know, like, how, how crazy, <laughs> crazy sauce is that? Um, I've, I've read a lot of King explaining it and how, again, since the whole book is about transitioning into adulthood like the ultimate you know way to, to to mark that transition is losing your virginity and and all that and i i get it but uh you know on paper but again talk about something that you couldn't get away with today like if it had come out in, <laughs> in 2020 canceled within a second oh, no he no he, he'd be hung from a tree <laughs> yeah they still kind of come for him over that every once in a while yeah i've seen it on twitter a few times where right. you know some some new corner of the 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 current generation finds out about it and they're like outraged and it's like guys we've been having this fucking conversation since like 86 you know this isn't new uh what about you scott uh it i must have i remember um you know i started i got into uh stephen king or became aware of him because my mother read all the books and i was um uh, I was an artistic kid and I was very attracted to the cover art on all of them, which was always really cool shit and always very ominous or, you know, sort of sinister. And I was a morbid kid. So that was cool. Um, I remember her reading it and me kind of taking a peek at it at one point and seeing the word fuck on a page and being like, Oh, <laughs> this is, that's the forbidden word. Um, but I, I didn't read the book before I saw the miniseries. I saw the miniseries when it aired and it scared the ever living shit out of me. 
And then I read the book probably, I don't know, a couple of years after that. And I remember I had like the paperback copy of it that had like a huge picture of Tim Curry's face on it, you yeah. know, sort of giving like side eye. Like I remember having that specific uh, copy of it and reading it. And I remember as I was reading it thinking, this is the most adult thing I've ever read. Like it's not in terms of necessarily violence or sex or, or language, but it was just lots and lots of it was over my head. I just didn't have the, the life experience for it. And I remember um, working my way most of the way through it. The the uh, child uh, orgy sequence did not give me as much pause, actually, as there's a scene in the book where they're like one of the I think it's Patrick Hoxetter is um, and, and I've talked about this on our show before. Uh, he's like putting puppies in a fridge in a fucking yeah. junkyard and just starving them to death. And this really. Uh, this really rattled me. I remember putting the book, like shutting the book, putting it down, walking out of the room and leaving it alone for uh, some days like that really, um, that really fucked me up. Um, but I, I, that was my first reading of it. And I must've been around the age that the kids were in the, uh, in the book. And then much like Eric, I didn't, I didn't read, read the book until reread it until much later in life. You know, it's such a commitment, but I, I think I read it. I think, First time I really sat down and reread the whole thing was around the time they announced the movie. And it's funny because it is a commitment, but it's, it's a definitely page book. it's you know, and I feel King has obviously kind of described it himself this way. In some ways, it's kind of like a greatest hits album. Yeah, like mm-hmm. if someone asked if they should only read one King book, I wouldn't say <laughs> it because I it's kind of a weird place to start, and it's so long. But at the same time, if you really were only going to ever read one, it should be <laughs> it. Because then it's kind of like you're getting, especially everything he'd written up until that point, mm-hmm. right? It's like such a, sh- just, it is a magnum opus in the truest sense of the word. I agree with it that. almost yeah. feels like a career culmination, which is funny because then he's written five billion books since then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I did a lot of research and, you know, starting uh, the King cast, I did a, read a lot of early King interviews and he just in the lead up to it, like people would ask him what he's working on next. And he kind of described it as that. It's like, this is, this is going to be the book. It's going to be a long one. It's going to have everything that I like in it. And I mean, and there is a literally almost every monster in the book. There's universal monsters. There's Jaws is in it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like they, they, they it, there's so, it, because a the leper, whole point is that a, a leper, blow jobs. <laughs> <laughs> right a, a bj leper which you know i, I think BJ was leper? Uh, the worst mm-hmm. kind of leper <laughs> the worst. uh you know it's a kitchen sink book like everything is in it but what's so crazy about it when you're reading it because he tells it all from the point of view of these characters that you come to love that it's not unfocused as as much as is, is stuffed in there it's it's a very focused book it's a very focused story Mm -hmm. and um you know that's kind of the miracle of the of the book to me if someone Uh, wanted to tackle like one of the major king works i would recommend it before the stand for instance for sure i mean i also read the stand later and it's something i I feel whether or not people are outwardly uh acknowledging it definitely comes up a lot on your podcast so i think actually my favorite part of the podcast is just hearing everyone's quote-unquote origin story 
yeah, of like right. how they became king fans. <laughs> and it's always like people, it's a like king hits, which is funny because he was popular with adults when his career was starting out. But I feel like every diehard King fan I know, it's like they found the books really younger than you think they should. Uh, right. Yeah. And, a lot of we, people brought in by the covers. You know, yeah. You, which is why I'm always disappointed when they re-release them. Yeah. And they give them all bummer. kind of like the same sort of generic, you know, like it'll just be a symbol and you can almost already have to know what the book's about before you even get... Why they it looks chose like a that shitty Ollie Moss, a shitty yeah. Ollie Moss. Yeah. yeah, well, like yeah. Uh, I still have my original it copy. I'm holding right. it up to the camera for listeners at home, and that was the little creepy green fingers coming out right. of the sewer grate. Like that was what hooked me as a kid. But, yeah, but I mean that, all the covers awesome. from that period. Cujo with the snarling dog snout. That that was the first book that I read was Cujo. Um, but uh, you know, The Shining has like a, a an interesting painterly cover. The Stand has that bonkers cover of uh, you know the the dude two with the, like the fighting? long oh, two yeah. guys fighting with scythes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like you know everything is was done to like get people to pick up a book off the shelf. Then like that that was it doesn't surprise me that you know the late seventies early eighties as a movie poster collector you know that. That that's what the art was like. It was that those was the heyday of Drew Struzan and Bob Peake and mm-hmm. and uh, John Alvin and all these great poster artists because that's what you know drew you into the the movie. It wasn't seeing Harrison Ford's photo, you know, on, mm-hmm. on a poster. It was seeing him like sw- swinging a whip or having a whip, you know, uh, over his shoulder. You know, it was it was these painterly compositions. Like it, it's definitely something that I miss um, in all forms of advertising. You know, movie advertising, book advertising. And even video games, like video games kind of, you know, that was another thing. Like you look at an Atari game or a Nintendo game, you know, there was something <laughs> about the the cover for Contra or something oh, that yeah. made you want to pick it up and play it. Oh, and so I was going to say, I don't know if it's because I read it later in life and not during this kind of pre-teen era where like some of my most famous King books, well, that was when I read them. For me, the stand, uh, it gets like more meandering in the middle mm-hmm. and like by, like I really felt its length by the end. But again, it, maybe if I'd read it when I was 13, <laughs> I wouldn't have felt that I, way. I, I don't know. I love, I love the stand, but I mean, there, there becomes a point where the first quarter of the stand is a little bit in uh, playing with that wish fulfillment. Thing. like everybody's kind of thought about what would happen if you were the last person on earth mm-hmm. like what would you do would you go in and you know go to a bank and roll around in hundred dollar bills it's like you could grab anything you wanted off the shelves you can take any car you wanted you know the the first quarter of the stand plays around a lot with that like what would you do would you how would you survive how would you uh, uh go on and then once it settles into the good versus evil plot and everybody gathers at Hemingford home on one end in Vegas on the other. And, you know, it, it shifts and, and you have to kind of ride that, that shift. I, I personally love it, but uh, I can see where, uh, uh, where that, that would hit you like that. I was also saying Steve, um, he was just listening to the Steven Weber audio book, uh, which mm-hmm. I've not listened to, but I know so many people who are obsessed with Steven Weber's performance in that audio book. How did you feel about Mr. Weber, Steve? Um, yeah, I guess I didn't read it as a kid. Um, I found out like seven years ago I had dyslexia, so I've always had a hard time reading 
books. So Especially first, ones that are over a thousand yeah, pages. Yeah, I, I couldn't. And, and I tiny couldn't, print. Yeah, I couldn't touch it. I mean, I had Night, Night Shift was the Stephen King book I bought when I was a kid because it was short stories, you know. And, right. and it's children. so good. Too. Yeah, and I was able that I, I can handle short stories, it, it, you know, but I can't handle like epic. And so when we were gonna do this, I just remember when the movie came out, everyone just kept talking about like a turtle, and I was like, uh, it's like I got to know what this turtle is. I mean, in my head, I got like visions of kids riding on a turtle's back and fighting a clown, and nothing. And fuck, man, I'm like, kinda. Yeah, it's not too far. Well, physically, well, like twenty. <laughs> hours <laughs> i'm like where the fuck is this turtle <laughs> but anyway it was worth it the turtle was cool i liked it anyway yeah so i i so for like the last two months while i was walking my dog i'd listen to the stephen weber book and yeah he did a, a phenomenal job with the the, the stuttering and to the uh, richie doing all the voices and right. uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing actually i gotta say i mean it's like i took my dog likes to take breaks and that helped out a lot, you know, so <laughs> a little old shih tzu. So it was cool, man. I had a, I had a really good time with it. Um, reading it as a, I wish I, I could have read it as a kid. Cause like what you guys think about what you guys were saying, like it would have been awesome at that age reading about those kids. But because I just remember, you know, being bullied and you know, my safe haven and not the library was the video store because it was like, right. you know, and then, on my block, there was like an attempted kidnap, kidnapping once with a van chasing a bunch of kids. So I was always terrified of leaving the house. That's why I always stayed inside watching movies and shit. So, oh. but yeah, it, it really, yeah, man, it really blew me away, the book. And, um, and so, because when I watched the movie, I hadn't read the book. And I was kind of lost watching that first It movie. I liked it, but I just didn't understand the mythology of this creature. I know Freddy Krueger what his mythology is, Nightmare on Elm Street. When I was watching, without reading the book and, and, and watching it, I was kind of lost, I gotta say. I was like, this is cool, I'm enjoying it, but I don't understand what's going on, really. Like, why all of a sudden the kid turns around and there's Pennywise holding limbs and stuff like that, right. you know? I, I was lost. And when I was a kid, I did watch the miniseries. I only watched it once. It didn't really, being a horror fan, it didn't really stick with me probably because I didn't read the source material. So, um, but yeah, the, the book, the audio book was, was, was pretty amazing. It was a free auto, you know, I joined audible, got the book and I, right. and I canceled. Uh, and yeah. one... well, there you go. You got your money. <laughs> yeah. <worth. laughs> yeah, you did, like man. eight yeah. days worth of, uh, Whew, two months <laughs> of reading. We, we, we had Steven Weber on the show and, uh, he, he's been in multiple Stephen King things. He, he's the, uh, other than Jack Nicholson, the other guy to play uh, Jack Torrance in The Shining, mm-hmm. and and he's had multiple other appearances throughout, you know, throughout King stuff. Uh, but he said the thing he's most proud of doing is that audiobook. Oh wow! It he, really, it this for, is his best contribution to the Stephen King fans. It's made a weirdly big impact on fandom for an audiobook. The only other thing I can think of is um, I'm forgetting the guy's name. I think he played the villain in the original Pete's Dragon, but he did all the American right. Harry Potter books and like got right. in the Guinness book for most individual voices in one book or something. But his, his oh, name, wow. his name in the movie is Dr. Terminus. Okay. <laughs> Pete's Dragon, Pete's Dragon <laughs> was the first movie I saw in a movie theater. I love that movie growing up. Wow, just Doc making Terminus. all sorts of childhood connections here. Uh, I, I will say one last, there, there are no orgies in that, in that movie. Though. <laughs> and that is why it is not a classic. That's right. <laughs> um, 
But and one they last plug up with the re- for remake. They could have hit it. The King cast, uh, Steve's little kidnapping thing. He uh, mentioned they reminded me that I was going to say if people want to know a good episode to start with for the King cast mm. to get really hooked, I recommend the Brian Fuller oh, Salem's man. Lot, of which the most riveting part is that extended section where he talks about the horrible serial killer in his like small Idaho town right. or whatever. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about that very briefly. Um, <laughs> when I first reached out to him, he, he and I have a mutual friend. And uh, so I, I was able to, to get in touch with him and I sort of pitched him on what the show was and that, you know, we, um, we just wanted him to have like a personal angle on the, on the material that, you know, we, that's really the only requirement come to the table with something specific to say about this adaptation. And he said, well, has, has anyone taken Salem's lot? And we had either just recorded with, or had just scheduled someone else. Yeah. I guess we just booked someone else to do Salem's lot. I said, yeah, actually someone so picked Salem's lot. So, you know, if do you have a, uh, a second choice? And he said, um, he said, well, the reason I wanted to do Salem's Lot is because when I was a kid, my Cub Scout leader uh, turned out to be a serial killer. And so I have a, uh, a very strong connection to the idea of an ancient evil moving to a new town and just destroying a community. And I was like, sold. So we're going to have two Salem's Lot. <laughs> wow. Say no more, Hold sir. On, let me cancel by, this other guest. By the no, way, no, no. I mean, you guys have great guests, by the yeah. way. Like your, your, your oh, guests you. are just... It's amazing. I mean, it's it's awesome, man. You guys. <laughs> well, and yeah, we, we, we've lucked out. We, we, we definitely lucked out. It, weirdly enough, it turns out that a lot of really awesome people in the industry like Stephen King and <laughs> were impacted hugely by Stephen King. Um, yeah, no, we, I, I think that pretty early on, we knew that we we started with Kumail Nanjiani, uh, who's a friend of mine. And I was like, OK, that, you know, maybe that'll be the, the biggest name that we can get. You know, we'll, we'll kick off with that. And he's a funny guy. So we'll do the running man. And that would be a, a fun one. But like by the time that we booked him, we ended up like, had already then booked like Elijah Wood. And we booked uh, I reach out to um, uh, somebody who I had a connection to from my time working, uh, uh, reporting on Peter Jackson stuff and Lord of the Rings is I'd met Damian Eccles from the, of the West Memphis three fame. And I remember pitching Scott that going, Hey, I could probably reach out to Damian. I know, <laughs> I know that this would be cool. What do you think? And he, and like, Scott was just like, like, Holy shit. I, you know, you have no idea. Like the, get that was, guy on the fucking phone right now. <laughs> yeah. Because what was fascinating about him. And if people don't know, uh, the West Memphis three, they had a whole documentary series called Paradise Lost that was based around their case. They were just three Arkansas teenagers who got essentially railroaded and, and convicted of murdering uh, three children in the uh, community. And uh, like, I remember watching that first Paradise Lost and being flabbergasted because there was no physical evidence there. It was all because they listened to Metallica and Damien specifically, they had, he had Stephen King books in his house. So if he read Stephen King and listened to Metallica, then he should be uh, capable of murdering children. That was, that was the whole, the, the whole thought then. And so I, I took that, I'm like, oh, you know, can we have a guest on the Stephen King podcast that like has actually gone to prison in part because of his love of Stephen King, <laughs> you know, like how crazy would that be? And he like jumped instantly at it and had, that's another great episode that if people are fans of the dark tower at all, 
uh, he talks about reading those uh, uh, as they were coming out while he was on death row. Like he had read the first few (laughs) and then he would be sent the 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 books and he said he just he read them dozens and dozens of times and and that because he was on death row he was in isolation he was through most of that he wasn't mingling with the prison population so for almost 20 years before he was eventually released uh the only people keeping him company were stephen king characters yeah i mean Um, it is it is fascinating like just the the breadth of people we've been blessed with you know to have on the show i know that's you know, it was super cheesy to say, but like we, it, it never ceases to amaze me just the passion that people uh, show up with. And the Brian Fuller thing is a perfect example because yeah. he came in and it not only was he passionate about the material, he had such amazing, amazingly keen insight. His He has a queer reading of Salem's Lot that mm-hmm. is like in depth and mind blowing and will completely, it wouldn't, I mean, it's probably not how King intended it, but the fact that it played so specifically to, to him, you know, uh, struggling with, with being gay as a kid and, and, you know, everything about that is, it's kind of makes me happy that that, that's the reason we started the podcast in the first place is just to kind of uh, take a look at all of, king stuff and show kind of spread the love right and show how it has affected everybody on such a personal level well and that's and again it comes up a lot on your podcast and a good way to loop back to it is right the fact as you said before that it's crazy about the kid orgy that this was like you know the number one book in the country <laughs> right. and that's the funny thing about stephen king is that he's like i'm trying you know he's like like Wings was the best-selling band of the 70s, and it's now a band no one really cares about. People still like Paul McCartney, uh, but who cares about Wings? Sorry. Yeah, it's not the Beatles. The point being, it's like, you'd think that the number one author, like this this huge success that King was, would be, and I I know that some people don't respect his writing, um, but it's just, I guess it's because it's horror, and especially, I feel, up until really the 21st century and kind of the rise of uh, the mainstreaming of nerd culture, I should say. Mm-hmm. Horror was always this dirty, weird, you know, like the Damien thing. Like if you read mm-hmm. Stephen King, you were like a gross garbage person, yet apparently <laughs> everyone was reading Stephen King. And uh, everybody who's a fan of King that's our age now uh, almost ex- exclusively are in it because their parents were reading it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right. So it was like suburban moms and dads. <laughs> reading this stuff and that's most of our entry points into it um but i think it's a good segue back because and now it's interesting that they did finally make an it movie and i don't know about you guys i was surprised that that it was so successful i mean king's had hit movies before but like i don't know i just i wouldn't you know the mini series is beloved but i think it's mostly beloved by people who are young enough to be completely terrified by Right. Uh, Tim Curry's performance. I don't know that adults who saw that walked away from it being like, what an amazing <laughs> two-part miniseries that was. Right. Um, well, it's iconic, you know? It's iconic because, I mean, there's the the book half of it, you know, and however many copies it sold, however many people read it. But there's also that miniseries. And, you know, uh, an entire generation had their wits scared out of them by it. And so when that first trailer for the new it came out. I remember like it broke some absurd record in the first Mm -hmm. 24 hours, however many millions of people watched it. And it was people responding to the iconography of um, that show and, or that miniseries. And I think that like, let's say they had remade the shining, 
you know, let's say they had done like a top shelf, you know, fucking Paul Thomas Anderson's directing it and it's got mm -hmm. a script by so-and-so and it's like Deacon shot it and it's just like the, the best possible version you could imagine of The Shining. I don't think it would have been that successful because the other one has all the baggage attached to it with Kubrick. With it, you got the same level of Stephen King iconography with it, but all it had to do was be better than that miniseries, which hasn't aged very well. So I think mm -hmm. people were excited to see uh, a modernized take on it. Right. That's my theory. I well, think there's, that's a good theory. It's also like, I, I was lucky enough, um, uh, I was still uh, working at Ain't It Cool News whenever they were filming the movie and I talked to the Warner rep on some set visit that I'd done. Uh, oddly enough, I think it was Justice League. Um, and so I was did the Justice League thing and I was sitting with the rep and I was saying, oh, thanks for inviting me to this. We don't usually get invites to, to Warner's movies or whatever. And um, and she's like, oh, just we'll just always ask if you, if I, we have something in the works and, you know, just make sure to ask. And I instantly said, uh, it, you guys are doing it. I want to go to it. <laughs> and so I got, I, I went to the set of it for, for a couple of days. Um, and I could kind of tell just in the way, I mean, listen, sometimes with these group set visits, you know, they, they'll be like, I think there's eight or nine of us there. It was one of those round table things. Normally in that situation, I'm sitting in the back. I hate round table interviews. Those aren't my thing. I was the the asshole that was <laughs> running the <laughs> running every interview because I <laughs> it was so obsessed with it and I was I remember when um, uh, Andy and Barbara Muschietti came in and like they sat down and I was instantly like okay so tell me about the black spot tell me about you know <laughs> tell me about all these these things like uh, any of this gonna make it in there there was a question at the time because in the book what uh, Pennywise does is he takes the form of what's uh, in popular culture at the time. So that's why you have the mummy in the, in the fifties or, you know, I was a teenage 50s. werewolf, right? I was a teenage mm -hmm. werewolf, all that stuff. And I was like, this is a Warner brothers property. So was there any talk of, and now that you've made, moved the kids stuff to the eighties, was there any talk of bringing in Warner brothers, Bill and Freddy Krueger, you know, that would have been, you know, what those kids were watching, like all that stuff, or is that a step too far? Like, and I was asking those kind of questions Yeah, and I could tell like right away, just the way they were answering the way the, the smile in their eyes that they completely understood where I was coming from. So I, I kind of had a, a sense pretty early on thanks to that set visit that they were getting it right. There was one key thing that I wasn't sure about. Um, and that was, and I think I told this to, to you, Scott, when you were asking me what how, how I was looking. Uh, I said that there was, um, I was there for the scene whenever Pennywise is coming out of the screen, mm -hmm. uh, when they're they're doing the, uh, the home movies or whatever. I was there for that. And then I saw a little bit of Bev and Bev's father in the, uh, the bloody bathroom being shot. Um, and then there was a little bit of the end they were shooting as well with, um, uh, with all the kids in Pennywise's lair. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I, I, rem I remember hearing there and in the Pennywise layer layers thing, this, they had to tell us a little bit about the end of the movie because we were seeing Bev kind of strung up, you know, her in the deadlights. Right. Um, and so they, they, uh, they told us two things that they're like, this is, these are big changes. And one of them was that Bev was captured by Pennywise and they had to go rescue her. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was you, Scott, that I was talking to about this. Yeah, I remember that and, conversation. And and and, and th that was the big like, oh, I don't know, man. That sounds really cheesy. That's kind of stupid. Like making like have the damsel separate. in distress. Yeah, right. Um, but I think the way they executed it was pretty was pretty good. It, it didn't bother me watching it in the movie. And the other thing that they had changed 
and they weren't in any of the drafts that we're going to be talking about today, um, was, uh, was they made Georgie's death ambiguous. Like they never found the body. Uh, and, and in Bill's mind, Georgie might still be alive down there somewhere. And that's why, uh, you know, he's fired up to go down. It's not him getting revenge. It's him trying to rescue, you know, his little brother who, who might be down there. Um, and those were two big changes that I came out of there going, I don't know if that's going to work, but ultimately at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the first movie. It's, uh, you know, we can, we can have a very much longer conversation about the second movie, but, uh, <laughs> um, but that first movie to me really captures the characters in the book and it really captures the, the tone of the horror and Pennywise works. Everything to me works is firing on all cylinders in that first movie. Uh, I agree. I mean, I think really the thing the first movie got the most correct, which is probably, I mean, obviously you got to nail Pennywise and I wasn't sure like, Oh, well they have something that people will find as iconic as Tim Curry. And I had to admit, I was like, they did. This is in some ways almost more iconic really. Um, in a weird way. And you're talking to, you know, not me, but, but uh, Scott like made it a joke of <laughs> that very first uh, reveal of Pennywise, <laughs> Pennywise in the pipe. Like that became your, your like claim to fame on Twitter for a long oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, silly that, that looked. That bit got out of control. And then um, shortly after all that happened, I found myself interviewing uh, Seth Graham Smith for like a Stephen King themed issue of the birth movies death magazine that we were doing. And, uh, like after we wrapped the interview, I was like, I just, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, I'm sorry about all that with the, uh, <laughs> with the picture of Pennywise <laughs> in the pipe. Like I didn't, you know, it's, it just looked kind of weird. And he's like, I know, you know, that, that picture, I actually, I don't know if he wants me saying, i'll leave it I'll, I'll leave it but like we we smoothed it over it was it was cool but but yeah that was that was oh, and i was gonna say but the other thing you have to really get is the kids and i thought they reached kind of they're like a stand by me level of just great casting oh, for and sure. yeah that perfect I'll, balance of hollywood movie but very naturalistic like you know you believed it all right yeah I, I can I can tell you, and again, this is all like weird inside baseball stuff since, you know, I'm talking about the set visit, but I knew talking to Andy Muschietti, he was going to be on top of it. We talking to the production designers, all this stuff. They, they brought us in um, uh, all the all the Losers Club kids, um, probably in two or three different groups. Um, but uh, Jack Dylan uh, Grazer, Glazer, I always forget. Uh, the one who plays Eddie, the kid who plays Eddie came in and he was the only one we interviewed solo and he was the very first one. And he came in and, you know, here, here he is like this little teeny tiny, you know, kid facing this room full of, you know, horror blogger types and nerds. And, and he sits down and uh, like just totally doesn't bat an eye uh, at any of it. And we, I think the very first question somebody asks is, uh, you know, how did you get your part? You know, some very boring you know, junket style question, like, how did you get cast in this movie? And he like instantly fired off in that way that Eddie does in the, in the movie. He's just like, well, you know, I came in to read for Bill and then they said, why don't you come back and read for Stanley? And then I read for Stanley. And then they said, why don't you come back and read for Eddie? And so I came back and read for Eddie. Uh, and then they gave me the part of Bev. <laughs> and, and like instantly, like we were cracking up. We're like, "Holy shit, this kid's perfect!" It's like every single, every single one, one of the the kids that that came in. You're just like, "Yep, no, that's right, that's right on the money." Oh, they're so awesome. good. Uh, well, it's also interesting, and I think perfect way to segue to actually talking about um, 
the original miniseries was sure. that now it feels like King is back. I mean, I think for those who watch a lot of horror movies, he really never went away. They were still constantly adapting his right. things, but they hadn't, it's true. He hadn't had a lot of very high profile stuff. Um, and that the miniseries came about in kind of the same way that for whatever reason, even though it was only a few years after he was so hot in the eighties, it was like, everyone kind of was like, well, I guess the Stephen King, that wave is, Mm. is going away and then pet cemetery was a huge hit and that kind mm -hmm. of kicked things off again and that was when i mean I, I i feel like i guess steve you're probably should take over from here leading the miniseries i don't think they ever really were considering doing it as a feature where they was kind of immediately they grabbed yeah. the rights to do it for abc it was more yeah. a question of how many episodes would it be yeah well I mean, I guess really quick to rewind back, he conceived the story in 78, began writing it in 81, and then finished writing the book in 85. And then September 15th, 1986, it was released. But according to the writer of the miniseries, uh, Lawrence D. Cohen, he's the guy that wrote the 1976 version of Carrie. Mm -hmm. um, they went to him first and pretty much a quote from him said, it's 1986 and the phone rings in my apartment. It's my agent's voice on the other end says, how would you like to do a Stephen King adaptation for ABC? And I pressed him for more details. He told me it's called It and it hasn't been published yet. So pretty much from that, you can tell ABC immediately jumped on, <laughs> jumped on it way before, I mean, right before it was released. Oh, I think so, Cohen also said that when they sent him you know, the like manuscript form or it's just like <laughs> printer paper. He thought they gave him like multiple copies by accident because <laughs> yeah. it was in several different boxes. And he's like, oh my God, this is one giant thing. <laughs> yeah, and so exactly. And then he agreed to do it. And at first it was gonna be an eight to 10 hour miniseries. And George Romero was brought on board to direct. And yeah, and um then little by little, I think ABC just started becoming nervous about it because A, it was horror and this eight to 10 hour commitment, you know, it was like, and plus ABC was also worried about Romero. Is it, is he going to make it too gruesome for the networks and everything? Because I think back then they were, you know, it's not like freaking Hannibal and shit today where <laughs> it, it's like back then they didn't want it bloody or gory at all. It had to be right. kind of, you know, tame like how it was. And so I think little by little, Romero started getting upset because ABC started cutting it down, you know, from eight to 10. And then it, they turned it into, um, you know, we're going to do a two night, four hour commitment for this, for this project. And Romero, I think, just started seeing like the life leaving it and the Night of Living Dead rem remake was about to happen. And so he bowed out. And then that's when they brought on board Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, so people well, that don't know. It's crazy Halloween too because Romero wanted to do the stand. It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do Pet, Pet Cemetery. Cemetery and had to yeah. leave that project because he had to do reshoots on Monkey Shines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then couldn't do this. So it's a bummer. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And the, and the writer was really bummed about that too because he said um, it was going to be, I mean, yeah, Lawrence D. Cohen said, you know, it was going to be eight to 10 hour series with George Romero. And it was going to be the horror miniseries to end all horror miniseries. Like at that point, it looked pretty amazing. And then, you know, ABC little by little just chopped away at it. And so Tommy Lee Wallace came in. 
directed it. And I believe Tommy Lee Wallace also, he wrote the second night because the writer became too busy after delivering the first night. And um, Tommy Lee Wallace wrote the second night. It came out, it aired November 18th and 20th, 1990. And, and that's what kind of kicked off the whole, like we're gonna do the Tommy knockers, all these, Stephen yeah. King miniseries. Oh, yeah, the 90s were all about Stephen yes. King miniseries. There's oh, so many of them. I haven't found, I couldn't find the Nielsen ratings for the first night, but for the second night, it came in second place behind 60 Minutes and <laughs> Murder, She Wrote and Designing Women. <laughs> it, like had, that, it had so. to be huge. They, 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 those, I think that there's like a paper to be written about on how uh, the miniseries it, as much as most of them don't really hold up now, mm-hmm. how they, they kept Stephen King in the national conscience. Absolutely. It, I like, actually wrote an article about it for a magazine called Delirium. <laughs> well, there you go. So I'll, I'll just find that and I'll rip it off. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds super smart. The but yeah, I mean, there's, because that was a huge deal. I remember that was a family thing. My family gathered around oh, the to watch stand. That. that was, I guess, Water yeah. Cooler was the, yeah. they loved calling it in the 90s. Yeah. But everyone I knew Yeah, Tommy school. Knocker's not so much, but, but it and the stand were like must-see TV. And, and it wasn't like now where you can, you know, binge the whole thing. It drops in, at midnight or whatever. This is, if you wanted to watch it, you either you were, you were pro, you know, uh, confident in your uh, VCR recording <laughs> abilities or you, uh, you made the time to sit and watch it when it aired. There were no other options. Oh, yeah. Then Sometimes They Come Back was a, a movie, a TV movie. And don't forget The Shining, when that was about to come yeah. out, is a big deal. The Langoliers, because... which is another great episode yeah. of your podcast. Can you see what The Langoliers originally looked at? looked like it, it's pretty cool actually they had a they were they were more like pro, uh they weren't computer. metal teeth meatballs <laughs> no <laughs> they were actually like little mad ball looking monsters uh if i i have yeah. to find, find them and I'll, I'll maybe i'll put them up that um yeah. i was gonna say before we move on from the mini series just a small tidbit that i think is interesting is that before they settled on tim curry they also were thinking of either Roddy McDowell, which is harder to see, or Malcolm mm-hmm. McDowell, which I guess I get where they're like, yeah, he's creepy, but... I could see I, that. I could see uh, that working. And they also, once they finally had Tim Curry, they were originally going to give him, I guess a little bit more like they ended up doing uh, in the feature, is kind of covering him in prosthetics to just make him look mm-hmm. creepier until they ultimately determined that Tim Curry does not need help being creepy <laughs> uh but there's some fun pictures of that that we can post on instagram and twitter yeah and then um in 1988 i don't know if you you guys probably know about this there was a an adapt it was like an officially licensed 52 television series in india whoa it's called yes there you go Have and you that, seen it? <laughs> no i've seen I've always, like yeah i've always wanted to it. see it but it, it's like 52 half hour episodes or something like wait that's from 98 yeah and he doesn't get like like georgie for instance like it's not on youtube really there's like maybe a couple of clips like georgie doesn't get taken through um a drain he gets taken into like a a pool so it's like a little that's the only yeah i cannot i couldn't you couldn't really see much but the clown looks you know unfortunate (laughs) <laughs> he go. looks like he looks like a hungover birthday party clown. <laughs> Does he looks like Shakes yeah. the Clown? <laughs> yeah. 
So I couldn't really find much on YouTube. I was kind of bummed. I could have swore like it would have been all on YouTube or something because I, I want to say that I was looking at that a while ago and that there were whole episodes of it on there. Oh, there were. Um, I would have no idea how to get back to where I was and it was hard to find <laughs> it to begin with because of the name of it, you know? Um, uh, yeah. W-O-H doesn't really... That, that that'll pull up some weird ass, you know, just random, uh, you know, results on, uh, on YouTube. But, um, I feel, I feel like I found a good amount of the episodes on there at some point. But. They probably work. Cause I mean, back in the day, I was able to find like that Brian De Palma remake of body double that the Bollywood version on there, but I don't know if it's still on there, but you can pretty much, I was able to find all kinds of crazy Bollywood remakes. For There's Bollywood versions of everything that you want. Like, uh, yeah. We, <laughs> I remember we did an episode on uh, 1408 that Mike Flanagan came on and, and talked about. And in doing that, there's a Bollywood remake of 1408. Oh, no. I want to watch all of these. <laughs> yeah. There's one of Misery, too. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kathy Bates see her. that one, too. It's really let's, weird. Love to see her dancing and singing with the axe. <laughs> yes. Before. Well, Steve, is there, do you have anything really before the Dave Kajanic script? Yes, and then we fast forward after the miniseries. It's kind of silent from what I can see until June, July 2004. That's when Variety made an announcement that they were going to do a two-hour remake of the miniseries, a two-hour remake of the miniseries from Mark Wappler uh, for Warner Brothers TV. Hmm. And Scott Wappler. Yeah, and then yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I Mark, had no involvement. Mark Wappler. Mark Mark Wappler. <laughs> If I said your name, Scott, forgive me. Uh, and and then in June seventh, two thousand six, the plan changed into a four-hour miniseries for the Sci-Fi Channel. And uh, Wait, did Sci-Fi do the Rob Lowe Salem's Lot or what? It was TNT? That was TNT. TNT, yeah. Oh, Sci-Fi did the Dune miniseries. That's yeah. It. Sci-Fi did the Dune miniseries, and they were going to have the guy that wrote Salem's Lot, the miniseries, to direct. And that was for the sci-fi channel. So, and then, yeah, then it kind of went silent after those two announcements for TV until March 12th, 2009 is when it was reported that David... Kajanic? I think that's that's what we're going to go with. Yeah, because he was was hot off of... um, He wrote the the remake, that kind of the remake of Invasion of Biosnatchers, The Invasion. Right. Which, in his defense, I believe he is not happy with and uh, he shouldn't be what they did to that movie <laughs> the only um, thing he should be he should be happy with is that they got uh, daniel craig and nicole kidman to star in it yeah, uh, have... but for people who don't know who dave Kajanic is he wrote the suspiria remake and a tv series or limited series i liked quite a bit the terror mm-hmm. right. yeah <laughs> first season that's based on the dan simmons i think is the author's name's book yeah, so what's, what's a trip is he's attached in 2009, and then in June 9th, 2010, there was an article on him. And at that time, he was, you know, I, I, I sent to you guys like a picture of uh, the Stephen King novel he was adapting uh-huh. that had tons of post-it notes. He was writing it, and he was writing the remake of Pet Cemetery at the same time in June 2010. Hmm. So it was kind of a trip. And so, yeah, and I think that brings us up to the June, June 21st, 2010. Um, he delivered from like a C. He had two drafts. Um, one was undated and then this was a dated one. 
And I think that's what's going to lead us to what we're about to talk yeah, about. Yeah, well, before <laughs> we even talk about it, I just, I've never seen this on a script before. So I thought it was kind of interesting is on the title mm. page, you know, where it's it right. based on, you know, producers, the date, then it says note. This is at heart, a story about adults confronting unresolved trauma from their childhood. As such, the concept of memory, specifically repressed memory, plays an important role. Memories here are initially presented as conventional flashbacks or quicker flash memories. But as the story progresses, the past and the present take on an increasingly close relationship. At points, the past and present share the screen at certain locations, or as certain locations trigger recovered memories. Ultimately, the past and present literally meet and coexist in the story's final showdown. For simplicity's sake, all scenes taking place in the past appear in bold. To further differentiate, the past happens in vivid summer weather while the present plays out during gray few days, or mm. the gray few days in spring. And you went reading it, uh, it did make it clearer that he put all the past scenes in bold. Right. <laughs> uh, I will say that this was the first red flag for me when I read this. <laughs> yeah, page was one. That, was that <laughs> he literally misspelled the word literally. In this, in As this, a screenwriter, there, I will say though, uh, my our scripts are riddled with so many typos. I, I, I forgot, I forgave there's so many it's that shouldn't have an apostrophe in there. <laughs> yeah. I forgave that, but if you're going to put some pretentious shit like that at this top of your at the top of your screenplay um you you probably should spell stuff right i mean i mean here what what i will say is that i can honestly see that this how we got the job doing this because this is the big idea of this draft right is that he is telling the adult story much like the miniseries where it's bouncing back and forth between the kid stuff and the and the adult stuff um but he, the big idea is that uh, his his version of Pennywise has um, is kind of an, a monster out of time, and that time doesn't work the same with that monster. So the closer the characters get to it, the more time kind of folds in on itself, and to the point where we get a you know a finale, which has the adults and their kid versions yeah, literally fighting team. side by side. Well, yeah, and which uh, you can, I can see how that would work in a pitch meeting. Going, this is my big idea of how mm-hmm. to adapt it. It just it, does, it doesn't. Well, I, it yeah. Well, there, there actually, there is one other thing I should have probably set up is oh, that yeah. he had he had to deliver a hundred and twenty pages, and it all had to take place in one film at the time. For sure. So and that's the and thing that, is like yeah. that is an important caveat because yeah. that 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 is and I even put it in my notes that like one thing that you need to take from this is that it's very clear that that you know he he was given a set of mandates and yeah. and to adapt this into because he does a lot of stuff in there that if they had made this would have pissed off so oh, many fans so <laughs> like bill uh, uh, bill takes mike hanlon spot mike hanlon doesn't exist we have to mm-hmm. say for the listeners this one begins with bill as 38 still right. living in Derry, and he's the one he's the one who never left he's and he's, he's a librarian dreams. Now. yeah He's a librarian. He's the one who's realizing that it is back and has to call the other people. And the other big thing that would have pissed everyone off is that there are um, only four boys and Bev. So they went from seven right. to five characters. But this is the thing yeah, that was like... No Stan. Because yeah. I think we're all going to basically just beg on the script um, <laughs> because it's clear why they moved on from it. But I will say entirely in his defense... Um, is like this was clearly the task he was given and he makes a lot of I would say logical choices 
if the idea is there are things wrong and unadaptable with the book and you need to quote unquote fix them. Mm-hmm, right. I can definitely see how you just put it all on like paper. Um, like if you just kind of had to write like a three page summary for the execs, you know, who didn't read the book and the idea of like, what do we need this many characters? Right. Like they're not even mm-hmm. like, what's the difference between Stan and Eddie, you know, like it's like, I right. can understand this thinking, so in that sense, it actually makes a lot of sense. And it does make sense since Bill is our focal point, like in the past, to right. also make him the focal point in the present. Because, you know, the way Stephen King writes is that he kind of has an idea and he just sits down and does it. Right. Eventually it's done. He doesn't outline in yeah. advance usually. And just... um, like with the stand, and I think it's the thing that for me makes me like it more than the stand is he has even said that when he gets to that middle section that's all about the small town government, uh, that he mm-hmm. almost stopped writing the book because at some point even he was like, where am I going with this? And then he suddenly right. had the idea about the bomb and he's like, okay, I'm back. But where if I'd had that idea, I'd been like, well, I guess I got to go back and rewrite all this stuff and just cut it all out. But he's like, no, nah, I'm just going to keep going because I'm Stephen King. They, they were writing on typewriters then. You couldn't <laughs> yeah, just exactly. go back and read it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, Your document. So so that that that's the big caveat here is... Um, sure that I get it. I get why this is what, how this turned out. And then I also clearly get why when it was done, there's like, we need to think right. up a new, a new plan. Cause it's just too much. Like in some ways it yes. does make sense why you do it as a mini series is cause mm-hmm. it's so sure. much information and it's all good. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah, and it does, it does feel like a story on fast forward, like reading this draft. And I mean, apart from specific decisions, like turning, bill's bike silver into a moped for some fucking reason <laughs> um you know which i still can't wrap my, my mind around like, what that decision wife, was because he's obviously not a famous writer who's married to a famous actress right. he's not even married to audra audra's just his co-worker at, yeah, the at the library who's like keeps asking him out on dates and he's basically like <laughs> i'm too busy trying to fight it <laughs> right well it's also weird is that like i thought for sure because she like goes goes in like and invites herself into his house at one point and he's got all this equipment like you, for their next confrontation with a clown and so he's got like guns and like rope and all this stuff and all these kids have been dying and disappearing in the town <laughs> i thought for sure that they were gonna go for like she sees that and goes oh my god this is and like the first time we see them together he is listening to the police band and they find a, a kid's body and then like he runs off and so all she's seeing is this guy who's like listening to police band hearing about dead kids and like running off to go look at the body or whatever yeah. and then she goes into his house and uh, you know in this town when like 10 kids have disappeared and some of them have shown up mutilated and find all this like battle equipment and rope and bags and stuff and, and like instantly <laughs> doesn't like, go um... wait a minute this is the guy that's been killing all the kids around town I could have sworn that's where they were going with it, but they I don't. I was wondering, since again, this one very much feels like he had to adapt within kind of these like logical guidelines of how to make this more of a movie movie, is I was wondering if it, this was all an attempt to get Audra to join the like loser group to go. Basically the idea of right. like, can we get more women in here? Why are there so many guys and only one right. girl? Um, so I was like, I totally thought that that was a studio note they were in. Oh, and also just for the audience. So they, we have Bill, uh, Ben, Richie, Bev, and Eddie. There's no Mike and no Stanley. 
Right. Studio and said, get rid of the Jewish guy, get rid of the black guy. Yeah, no <laughs> minority representation in our movie. With the exception of, and they ended up doing this in the in the Muschietti versions, is they they blatant they make uh, Richie gay, like in, mm-hmm. in in this draft. Um, which again is is pro- is one of the few things that I actually liked in the script because there was th- there's a scene where where when Pennywise confronts Richie, um, I, they they have the scene that's the it's it's the uh, leper blowjob guy um, <laughs> who offers offers to blow him, and suddenly that scene becomes less about just general creepiness because I think in the the novel uh, it is Eddie that that uh, uh, is approached by by that because he's got it's less about you know it's weird that a, a grown-up is you know offering to to blow a kid but it's it's more about um that he's a leper and that he might catch a disease and and that's that's what eddie's fear is um but what became interesting by like switching that to richie and having richie be you know this kid who's struggling to figure out you know how to work or how he knows that he's he's gay but it's in the 80s at a time when it's not socially acceptable to come out in a small town especially and that's what pennywise grabs on you know that's that's what he uh you know he uh kind of uses to get at richie like to me it's one of the few like interesting things that clicked in the script um unfortunately it's just for one scene and ultimately it doesn't really matter at any other point Uh, i will say speaking of pennywise that um while Dan Kajanik was writing it in his mind, if he could cast anyone as Pennywise, he would have gotten a time machine and cast Buster Keaton. Uh, well, that's a practical. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you know, they don't listen to the writer anyway, so you might as well just say whatever you want. Well, Pennywise, that's another thing. Sorry if I'm dominating the Scott. No, Feel free to it. tell me to shut up. And, oh, sorry. And, uh, <laughs> that's you can battle it out with Scott. Scott and yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but that's another crazy thing about this is I made a note. Pennywise, this is a 130 page script. You don't see Pennywise until 66 pages into the script. Like the, the Georgie thing happens at the beginning, but you only see like his hand and you only see like a vague shape in the darkness. And, and like, uh, there's a couple of things that happen, but it's all like, you know, you see glimpses. I think Ben sees glimpses of him between some, some trees through some foliage or whatever, but you don't actually see him, see him until halfway into the script. And, and I, and I'm just sitting there going, what a boneheaded decision. I, I guess they're kind of looking at jaws or something and going, you don't need to see it until halfway through. And it makes it <laughs> scarier, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, compare that to the Muschietti version that got released. Like you in five, five minutes in, you get a full long look at Pennywise and, and you see what he can do. So then like that makes him even scarier for them, mm-hmm. you know, for the, the times that you don't, you know, for the next 30 minutes where you only, you know, see glimpses because you know, you, they show up front what, what's at stake. And, um, oh, I, I now just looking at my notes. I now remember why the scene, why I thought Audra was going to join the group is that right. during the big Pennywise library scene, when they're adults, um, she shows up and she can also see the blood so right. it's sort of like she, but then he's just like, you gotta get out of here. Um, the one other thing that feels very much again, like just, I got to fit this all into a book and it's, or into the one little movie and it's not in the book, but, and I don't want to totally get sidetracked complaining about it. Chapter two, that movie <laughs> is so long while simultaneously also feeling like they're just kind of killing time. And part right. of it is that you have, 
seven characters and they're like, well, we each need to split up and each have our own little like encounter. Um, yeah, so I find get, our totems. I get why in this one, um, they pair everybody up. It's like everybody pair right. up mm-hmm. and go off. And the one thing that I thought this did make interesting is that I know King has talked about, or maybe it's even just obvious in the book. It's now been a little while since I've read the novel. But when Bev goes back to her old house and has her scene with the Mrs. Carey character who's baking the cookies, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be kind of a Hansel and Gretel like mm-hmm. homage. Mm-hmm. And so when it's Bev and Ben, uh, it makes even more sense because you know Ben used to be the fat kid. Mrs. Carey's like talking about how she wants to like fatten him up and all the cookies in the oven. So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I think that, you know, when I I had not read this uh, draft of the script before you sent it. And when I got to that, you know, right off the bat where that that first page where it's warning you about how memory is ultimately going to mingle with, you know, the the present timeline of the characters. I was like, holy shit. So this is you often hear about these these big studio projects that are like they're like, we're going to adapt the stand. You know, that was another one that they they kept threatening to do. You know, ultimately they did it with CBS All Access, but there was a point where it was, was going to be one long movie and then it was going to be two movies. And then, you know, and you're and just ben thinking... Ben Affleck was going to do it. Yeah. yeah, and you're thinking like, how the fuck are you going to like compact that much text, that much story into like one movie? And so when I read that on the, on the opening page of this, I was pretty excited because here I was finally going to get to see somebody attempt to do this. And I think... <laughs> um, I've given this a lot of thought since I read it. I think that I think it's a very bad adaptation of the book, but I also think it's a very instructive screenplay in terms of uh, economizing uh, a sprawling story like this. Like, can you do it? Yes. And this is the proof. It is simultaneously the proof of why you should not do it. And so to me, it was, I didn't like it. And I was frequently, um, frustrated with it and it felt like I was reading it at like two times speed like some people listen to podcasts Mm -hmm. because they're insane Um, but I'm like going through it and getting progressively more frustrated with it um, because it wasn't taking a second to breathe and giving anyone any real characterization Um, but I but I am glad that I read it and I think he must have put a hell of a lot of effort into making that work and then when you sent us that picture of his like you know, yeah. kind of footnoted copy of the book. I'm like, holy sh! I hope they paid this guy well because this must have been the <laughs> biggest pain in the ass that I would never be able to do it. Well, yeah, you, yeah. Well, actually, to oh, to, go, to go back really quick to the Jaws thing in the beginning. Yeah, um, something I I I, I forgot because I thought it was in another. I've read so many of these drafts. Um, actually, Bill is watching Georgie getting, uh, like uh, killed from his window. Right in this version too. So I guess, you know, Georgia isn't walking down the street and, and all that, but Bill, <laughs> Bill can't uh, yell out because of his stutter when he's watching right. Georgie being murdered. And then a neighbor comes into the house with uh, Georgie with his severed arm. And you, so you kind of just see the aftermath of him and that's right. how they hid the character. So I, I mean, I guess yeah. that was like another way to maybe cut some time too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, in, to talk about the craft of the script, it, it is an interesting footnote. I'm so glad that this isn't the version that happened, um, but it is it is interesting to to read it just for everything that that uh, Scott said. Uh, but like on a craft level, I was kind of shocked about 
that two times speed feeling that you that you described, Scott, I I think it's because there's very little character experiencing anything. Yes. In this in this thing. It is the first half of the script is almost wall-to-wall dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's just people talking about things that they've experienced, um, it, which is another reason why you actually don't see Pennywise until halfway through. Uh, it's people talking about things that they remember and don't remember. And it, it is, it is such a poor choice in, in, uh, in, in, the, I, we'll, we'll be talking, I, I guess about the Fukunaga draft soon. Um, and that is a stark, stark difference between those two. To where one takes the time to set up the characters and the and this one doesn't. It literally just feels like, um, you know, somebody trying to do the mini series on fast forward. Yeah, and then when it and when it gets to the end, when you know, as they as they threaten on the opening page, sure enough, you know, it gets to a point where the adults are now in Pennywise's lair, but also the the kids are around and. You know, and there's like, like talking to each other. Yeah, they're talking. Like, yeah, they're on. interacting. Like, there's a moment where Bill's like, "You go that way, and I'll go this way." To his younger self, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, fucking come on! This is ridiculous, <laughs> dude!" Like, in practice, if you had put that on screen, it just would have looked absurd. I think. Well, and I think you know, it's like they had to do this draft. I think to convince themselves and everybody, yeah, that like you just can't turn it into one movie. Uh, and I, I honestly, I feel this is as good as you can try and do it for the number of pages he was allowed. Right. Uh, it's just, it's too much. The only way to make it a better script would have, to have been even less faithful. You know what I mean? Right. There's yeah. only three yeah. characters and maybe we <laughs> hardly we were, see anything in the past. If you were going to do it as one movie, I mean, this is kind of how you would have to do it. Um, no one would want that. I think audiences would have rejected it wholesale, but I, I do agree with you that this is probably a thing where they, they gave it a shot. They hired a guy who said he could do it and they did it. And it's worth noting that that was the last time they seem to have attempted it because the next time it comes up, you know, yeah, they're now they're splitting it. Like into, yes. They're two like, movies. Well, yeah. they're basically just doing the mini series, but right. With- Lots of money. I will just say to cap off what happens in the movie. Yeah, they're they're fighting uh, side by side with their younger selves. Uh, like the whole town just gets like completely destroyed um, yeah, in a big that's flood. The book. Uh, yeah. And then at the end, in this one, Bill is the one who is like in who's comatose, not Audra. Yeah, Audra doesn't come back, and. Eddie puts Bill on silver, his moped, and they send Bill riding off and it ends with him like getting his mojo back and smiling the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, no, this, this draft is rough. And um, I, I, again, I will say the, the one interesting element to me throughout all, all that, I mean, there's a little glimpses here or there of things that work, but, like the the thing that makes us wholly interesting to look at as an artifact is having Pennywise be that uh, that thing out of time. Like because there there's a they talk about um, how Bev hits him with a slingshot, like he shoots him in the face, and then in the 1920s photos where Pennywise pops up, he has a scar where he was shot because time you know, works differently for him. So everything's happening to him at, at once and not at all, you know, mm-hmm. like that, and that plays to a lot of the cosmic elements from the book where you have a little bit of freedom to play around with what this entity is and how things work differently with it. Um, 
that to me is very interesting. Uh, it doesn't work. It would have been a disaster had they actually filmed it. Uh, but that that's what makes this worth a read for anybody that's... Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting know, read. Uh, and like we've been saying, it's kind of, it serves almost like an experiment. And I think that's why I'm mm-hmm. also, I feel bad bagging on it too much is because I can imagine getting this assignment and being like, right. turn this thousand page book into a 130 page script go and then this you know i did it you know but yeah, he, he it, had it's a, too much stuff it just yeah like you said it never really has a chance to breathe right yeah i have a quote from him he says i plan to be very protective of the book uh the reality though is that warner brothers wants to do this as a sig- single film so i will have to kill a few darlings to make that happen you have my promise <laughs> the, the black one and the jewish one we, yeah, we- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you have my promise, though, that I will do this with the utmost humanity and respect to King's work. Uh, he's the king, after all, and I intend to, kin- to continue to pledge to him my allegiance. And right. so that's what he had to say. And actually, uh, Ven- we had Vincenzo Natale on our show, and he, for a second, was somewhat attached to this version of the script, mm-hmm. but um, it-, it kind of went away before he can even accept it or anything. But there are... I think we'll post it. I posted it before. He had some concept images of his Pennywise he wanted mm. to do. But um, yeah, so he was, that's the only filmmaker I could really find attached to this version. Well, this is actually a perfect spot to hit pause. Um, and we'll pick up again in the next episode with the uh, Kerry Fukunaga phase. Uh, it's a good breaking point. Um mm-hmm. Thanks to the KingCast guys. Uh, where can they find you on social media? You're both very active on Twitter, I know. Uh, I am at, at Scott Wampler BMD. Uh, I am no longer at BMD, obviously, but if I alter my handle, then I will no longer be verified. And oh. if I lose that, then I lose my quality filter. And I will <laughs> not give that up willingly. So, uh, And you can find the show at, at KingCast19, all one word. And I'm at Eric Vespi on Twitter. Uh, somebody tried to hack into my account, and so it is locked down for me, and I'm waiting for Twitter support to, to come back uh, and let me actually back into my account. Uh, but that is where, where my profile is. Uh, and you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm. I also recommend downloading the Electric Now app, which is free. You can watch movies, TV show, and more importantly, video of our podcast and uh, all of our sister podcasts on the Electric Surge Network. I actually don't know if they're putting up um, these Zoom episodes. I don't know if anyone wants to stare uh, at all of us sitting in chairs with uh, our exciting homes in our background. Um, But I would like to give a thanks to everyone at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter uh, and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, I am Josh Miller. I'm Steven Scarlatta. And we will not see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.